We'd probably like to think we know all we need to know about communicating well. I mean, we do it every day. We know how to ask someone to pass the salt or pick the kids up after work. But as it turns out, there's a lot more to communicating well that most people simply take for granted. Now, my guest on the show today is an expert on communication, the late, great Pete Gerlach. And this is episode 18 of the Be Yourself and Love It podcast with me, Anthony Samaroff. It gives me great pleasure to welcome back to the show Pete Gerlach, author of the Break the Cycle self-help website at sfhelp.org. We are going for round two. Ding, ding, ding. How are you, Pete? I'm fine, Anthony. Thank you. I'm glad to join you. So just to fill people in, last time we spoke, you were telling us about the internal family systems model of the human psyche, which holds that people are multi-psychic. In other words, their personality is made of a combination of sub-selves who each fulfill a different function. And we were talking about how parenting can wound or prepare people for the journey of life and we wanted to talk about what people could avoid and what they could make sure that they did as parents to give their children the best opportunity to become everything they can become in this life. And if people want to hear that interview, I've included it as episode 7 of the Be Yourself and Love It podcast. This time we're going to talk about teaching children to communicate well. Now, you wrote a book on communication called Satisfactions. Would you like to give us a little bit of your background in the field of communication since you are an expert on that? All right, thanks. Um, I, for reasons I don't understand, Anthony, I have been obsessed for over 40 years trying to understand this dynamic among all animals, including us humans, called communication. Uh, the more I study it, the more I observe it as a veteran therapist myself. I've watched couples and families struggle to communicate, and I've certainly had my own struggles. And I've become fascinated with what makes effective communication? What do people need to know in order to do that? Why don't people have what, are, what is required to communicate effectively? So the book Satisfactions that you mentioned is my attempt to, in an organized way, uh, take a very complex subject and reduce it to some fairly straightforward um, ideas. The basic ideas in the book and in um, a part of my website uh, lesson two out of seven in my website is all about communication skill. And the book proposes that there are seven specific learnable skills that anyone who is motivated can practice. And the result will be a far more effective degree of communication with children and adults of all types. So fundamentally, that's the purpose of the book is to explain at least my view of what is communication, why do we do it, how do we do it, how can we do it effectively. So that's what the book is about. Okay, great. And in that book, you pointed out six particular reasons why people communicate. Could you run us through those 
briefly. Okay. I'm, or not briefly, if you wish. I'm chuckling because um, the book that illustrates that my book, Rethinking the Six Reasons We Communicate, I can only come up with five. So I, where I am right now is there are five reasons that all of us, including Anthony, you and me at this moment, there are five reasons that people um, communicate. And in my experience, very few people can name these. The implication is people don't know why they're communicating. <clears throat> the first of the, the five is um, subtle, I think, but very, very important. It is people communicate in order to maintain or either create or maintain respect. Um, that's not intrinsically obvious, but I think uh, the reason that people express themselves is to earn their own self-respect. Um, they also try and achieve respect with their communication partners. So to me, that is a subtle but very influential reason um, that people communicate. If you ask someone, why are you communicating? Seldom will they say, well, I'm doing it to maintain my own respect. And yet that's a covert reason, I think, for many of us. For instance, as I'm speaking to you right now, I'm, I'm judging myself. Am I making sense? Is this clear? Is this useful? And in trying to answer that question, I'm earning my own self-respect. So that's part of why I am saying what I'm saying at the moment. So that's one of five reasons that people communicate in my experience. Um, the second and most obvious is uh, we communicate to give or get information from each other. Uh, I might say, what's the topic for today? And you would say, well, we agreed to talk about helping children learn to communicate better. In that case, you and I each would give and get information, which causes us to communicate. The third um, popular reason that people communicate, um, check to see if this matches your experience, the third reason is to vent. What I mean by venting is people need to speak to another person and talk about their thoughts and their feelings, their emotions and their needs. And they don't need information from the other person usually, although that may be superimposed. But the fundamental need is I need you to care about me. I need you to listen to me and really be interested in what I'm saying about myself. And I need you to affirm me, and I need you to respect me. That's sort of a, a complex web of needs. But the bottom line is, people communicate to vent. That's especially true of children. That's um, to solicit empathy from the listener. Um, that's an important piece of listening to someone who's venting. Um, I mean, successful venting occurs when person B, the listener, really focuses on the speaker and empathizes with them and says something like, so you're feeling, so you need, you were upset because, you're really overjoyed because, that kind of affirmation comes with empathy. So that's an important part of receiving someone who needs to vent. So give, uh, give or get information, gain respect and maintain respect and vent are three reasons we communicate. Um, a fourth reason, which most people would intuit, is we communicate to cause action. I want you to start something or change something 
or stop something. So we, we communicate in order to cause someone else to change. And the fifth reason, which is not overly obvious, is, in my opinion, people communicate in order to avoid something unpleasant. The classic example is being crammed into uh, an elevator with a group of other people that you don't know. And because silence is uncomfortable for many people, when you're in close proximity to someone, people say, boy, it sure has been hot today, hasn't it? You know, which is kind of a meaningless communication, but it breaks the silence. And it's a way of avoiding saying, uh, I'm uncomfortable that you're so close to me, or I'm uncomfortable with your body odor, or something like that. So, you know, we try to be polite and cheerful, and often we communicate, and this is a trivial, trivial, trivial example, marrying couples who are in trouble often won't talk about what's really troubling them. That's a far more serious um, example of people communicating in order to avoid something really scary or disgusting or discouraging. Um, anyway, those are the five reasons that occur to me as to why we all, children, uh, including infants, by the way, infants, children, teens, and adults, we all are motivated by these five needs. What do you think? Great. I think if I remember correctly, the sixth one in your book was to overcome boredom, which I think could quite easily fit into the fifth category. Perhaps that's why you thought. Yes, it is. That's, that's part of the fifth reason. And I was thinking, you said, you know, even infants communicate in this way. So perhaps we should just quickly define what we mean by communication. <laughs> and remember hearing you do so in one of your videos. Thank you for that. Uh, to me, it's a fundamental question that most people never stop to contemplate. It's like, what is communication and when does it occur? To me, communication between two people anyway, or for that matter, two animals, communication occurs when the actions or the presence of person A has some significant effect on person B. That's a pretty broad definition. It has nothing to do with speaking or listening. Uh, because you and I, uh, if, we, if we were physically near each other, we could communicate without saying a word. Our, our faces, our eyes, our body language, our behavior could affect the moods or the perceptions or the thinking of the other person. That is communication. Very broadly, what do you think? Yeah, very true. So, what what makes communication effective? What, how would we define effective interpersonal communication? Okay, great question. Well, if you start with the idea, people communicate to fill needs. A need is a discomfort. We all are needy, all of us, kids and adults. Um, you and I, we have needs. We're filling needs as you and I speak right now, Anthony. So if you sit, if you start with people communicate to fill one or more current needs, from that, effective communication occurs when each person fills their needs well enough at the time. And I'm going to throw in a second requirement, which is 
the way they fill their needs is acceptable. Because as you know, people can fill their needs with each other, um, but the way they do it can be unpleasant or uncomfortable or rude or disrespectful or scary. So you need to fulfill your needs. Your partner needs to fulfill her or his needs. And you both need to do it in a way that is acceptable. Those are the two requisites that I propose are required for effective communication. How effective do you think, you know, your typical parent or grandparent is at communicating by those criteria? I would say less than 1% of typical parents and grandparents uh, communicate effectively. I'm very biased on this subject. As a family therapist, I have observed over and over and over again, uh, well-intentioned adults together and with children absolutely do not know how to communicate effectively. They don't have a definition for it. They don't know the skills. They're not aware of their process. And they achieve probably well under 50% of the effectiveness that they could. I think very, very few family adults, or for that matter, adults in general, know how to communicate effectively, largely because they don't know what they don't know. I'm very biased on this subject. Well, in that case, we certainly have a task on our hands here. Oh, yes. So let's see if we can clear up some of that mess with this video. Okay. Now, your website has a list of about 30 common blocks to the effectiveness of communication. That is a lot. Yes, it is. And I will put a link to the page where you talk about them in the description to this video. Maybe you can discuss with us some of the common blocks to effective communication right. so that we can help these parents and grandparents avoid them. Well, again, I value your question. The, the most fundamental block from my biased point of view, Anthony, is that typical family adults, for that matter, all adults, are unaware that they have significant psychological wounds. Um, what I mean by wounds, we discussed this the last conversation we had. Um, psychological wounds, from my perspective as a therapist, include a disorganized personality, excessive shame, excessive guilt, excessive fears, anxieties and fears, problems learning to trust well and trust too easily or too little and a major wound is reality distortion which includes denial and the sixth of six wounds that are commonplace even epidemic is because of the first five wounds an inability to bond an inability to empathize and an inability to give or receive love those wounds, those six wounds, in my opinion, are the biggest single block to effective communication because most people can't name them. They don't know what the wounds mean. They don't know what to do about them. And most of all, they don't know that they have the wounds. So if you're excessively shamed or guilty or fearful, that's strongly going to affect how you communicate with various other people. That's the biggest block of all. Let me pause for a minute. Do you have any comments or questions about that? 
None particularly spring to mind, although I can see how the defensiveness that arises from a shameful personality or a fearful personality really can get in the way of two people communicating well. Um, yes. They might lead to a person attacking the other person instead of being focused on what they need to get out of the situation or what the other person needs to get out of the situation. Right. The, the second major block, a generic block, uh, Anthony, is, in my opinion, ignorance. Um, what gets in the way of effective communication is average people, um, men, women, young, old, certainly kids, are not taught how to communicate effectively. Parents don't teach it. Schools don't teach it. Example, I challenge any listener right now um, to stop and think. When you were a child, did the adults at home or in your school teach you what the seven communication skills are and how to use them? Did anybody ever teach you that? Did anybody ever teach you the blocks that we have just begun to describe? What blocks effective communication? Did anybody ever teach you that? My observation with well over a thousand people, clients and students of mine, is no, people are not taught fundamental information about this very primal dynamic that we all use all the time to get our needs met with each other called communication. People are ignorant. I don't mean stupid. I mean uninformed. They simply don't know. For instance, I have made a practice. I work as a therapist. I've worked with a lot of troubled couples who are trying to improve or maintain their relationship. One of the things I traditionally ask most couples, I've done this with hundreds and hundreds of couples, I ask the two people, uh, do you have a common definition of, of the process of problem solving? You're trying to solve some relationship problems or family dynamic problems. Do you have a common definition of the process of problem solving? I would say out of many hundreds of couples that I have had a chance to ask that question, I would say fewer than 3% had some kind of meaningful description. Most people would shrug and say no, or I don't know, or it's sort of like talking things out or some vague statement like that. People don't know how to solve problems. It's just astounding to me. Our society doesn't teach us how to do it. In any event, I'm getting way off the subject here. You ask for blocks. Two blocks are psychological wounds and ignorance. Then there's a group of uh, speech dynamics that people are unaware of. Um, for example, um, interrupting. I'm, I suspect that uh, if you stop and think, you know somebody that often interrupts you before you're finished. That's a pretty obvious communication block, especially if it's chronic. Um, another type of block is lack of eye contact. When someone speaks at you but won't look at you, often that sets up some distracting psychological reactions like, are you telling me the truth? Am I doing something that offends you? Is there something wrong with you, with me? So lack of eye contact is a silent type of communication 
block, a major block that most people are unaware of, is based on the premise that in order to have effective communication, each person must, whether it's an adult or a child, each person must respect themselves and feel that they are respected by their communication partner. We all seek to feel respected. When people are communicating, either by phone or text or face-to-face -face or over the phone, or, um, often there is an implied message that is received by one or both people. It can be called an R, the letter R for respect message. There are only three types of R message in every communication between two people. One is, at this moment, I value my needs, my dignity, and my worth higher than yours. I respect me more than you. That's a one-up R message. The second type is a one-down R message. I respect your needs, your dignity, and your worth more than mine. I am one down to you. The third possible R message is, I respect both of us as equally dignified, worthy people right now, and I see your needs equal as important to mine. That can be called an equal-equal R message. That is the only message, the R message, which is largely implied. It's the only um, type of communication that really allows full, fully effective communication. If you stop and think, when did I last get a one-down message from a, from a partner, a communication partner? How did I feel? When I got a one-up message from my partner, how did I feel? Usually, those inhibit effective communication. So, people's unawareness of their R message is a major type of communication block. Anthony, I can probably go on for an hour with examples like this, but I don't want to overdo it. Does that give you a flavor, at least, of some of the 30 communication blocks that we all are subject to? Yes, and I thought I'd just throw in a few I can be quite brief with. I think on the ter in terms of our messages, there are some certain ways of communicating that tend to maybe fall into the category of a negative R message that you would give to the other person consistently and some of those are like moralistic judgments like um, well calling someone selfish or lazy or telling them what what the trouble with them is which elicits a defensive reaction and stops people discussing what they need out of the situation making demands rather than requests can also do that right. blaming the other person and using obliging terms like you should or, or you're supposed to, rather than I think you'd benefit from doing this. Um, a, a really popular one is you always or you never, which is just such a hassle because as soon as someone says you always do this, the other person is going to say, well, last week I didn't. That's right. And, and you get off topic very quickly. So maybe saying something like, the last three times might be a bit more accurate and a bit more helpful. Other things I've noticed that, that people don't like is being told they're wrong or unreasonable or being asked to be taken on credit. I've got a degree on this. Just trust me. Invoking the past for leverage. I told you so. I warned you. 
and sweeping criticisms that don't give any information at all. I've got a serious problem with you. Right. One, one of the things that you're referring, one of many general uh, communication blocks is generalizing. Another, to add to your list, which I agree with, by the way, another one is fuzzy thinking. Something that gets in the way on important communications, people say things like, we've got to resolve this issue. Well, what do you mean this issue? What is this issue? Or uh, they really need to take care of that. Who is they and what is that? That's fuzzy thinking. So that's a block. But go ahead, I'm interrupting you. Speak language. And um, maybe the kind of language that might be indicative of a one down our message is when people say things like, well, I had to, or you made me, or something that, that, that fits the role, like, well, you know, I'm a woman, or I'm Jewish, or American, or an alcoholic, or the boss said so. And that, that is a kind of denial of responsibility. That's right. Rather than saying, I chose to because the boss told me, and I didn't want to get fired. Right. Which would be more accurate. Right. So... I mean, we all know that insults and put-downs hurt, but not everyone knows that they're a poor way of motivating others to change. We think that maybe if we put someone down, then the bad feeling they get when they've been put down will motivate them to do better. Do you think that's likely? Uh, I would say categorically not in a good way. Um, they may out of fear, they may out of shame, cause behavioral change in the receiving person. But it will certainly not enhance the relationship. It will increase distrust and dislike and avoidance. So I see no practical value in insults at all. And I think generally speaking, every situation is somewhat different. But generally speaking, I think insults degrade the effectiveness of communication and of relationships. Is that what you're asking? Sure. And that is really a principle because if people don't meet our needs out of sort of warmth, love, affection, or friendship, you know, but rather out of guilt or shame or a fear of loss, they'll always bill us for it afterwards, whether it's uh, in resentment or, or being passive aggressive or using the same bully tactics. I'm a big fan of nonviolent communication. Right. I don't practice it as a way of life, but it is a tool that I like to bring out of my box every now and then, particularly when I'm worried that the other person might take criticism personally because it offers quite a lot of tools for helping avoid that. And one thing that's important in the MVC system is distinguishing between observations and evaluations. Uh -huh. So if my partner wants more affection than me, I might say, oh, she's really needy, whereas she has this idea in her head that I'm just a loop, you know? I'm not loving enough. Right. But they don't really give us enough information to really be helpful uh -huh. and it's far better to express what we're getting out of the relationship that we're, that we're not. Now I don't think that we always need to go around separating our observations from evaluations but what that looks like is say instead of saying 
Janice, you just work too much. Saying something like, you spent more than 60 hours in the office last week. Or rather than saying someone is lazy, say, well, the last three times they had an exam, they only studied the night before the exam. That way we are providing information rather than making judgments of the person concerned that might serve as a block to communication. Uh So I was just going to ask, now that we've discussed some of the blocks to good communication, what skills are required for effective communication? You have said you have seven. Yes, I do. It's taken me 40 years to be able to answer your question. Um, I believe there are seven specific learnable, underlying learnable skills that ideally children would begin to learn when they are four or five. Um, In my observation, almost no children are given the chance to learn these skills. Here's what they are real quickly. The first skill in effective communication is awareness. That's a big word. But what I'm saying is uh, a skill in order to communicate effectively, each person needs to be able to answer clearly. This is what I feel right now. This is what I think. This is what I need. This is what I'm doing. Those are four fundamental awarenesses that many busy people in our today's hectic world Um, are either only hazily aware of or they are unaware of. In order to communicate effectively, you need to know what you're feeling, because feelings are guides to needs. What am I feeling? What do I need? What am I thinking? And what am I doing? That's skill number one. Skill number two of seven is, in my judgment, clear thinking. This may seem obvious, but in my experience, many people who are rushed and frustrated and distracted think what might be called fuzzily. And as I mentioned earlier, uh, people often use really fuzzy language. For instance, uh, we have to do something about it. Well, who is we specifically? Is that you and me? Is that you, me, and the postman? Is that you, me, and the prime minister? Who is we? Uh, what is it? We have to pass a law, a law uh, making it illegal to kill dogs in the middle of the street. Oh, okay. So fuzzy thinking is uh, a block, and the obverse, the skill, is becoming aware of your thinking and your phrasing and your language. Clear thinking, clear specific thinking. You, you referred to it yourself. I agree with you. So that's a second major skill. The third skill can be called empathic listening. Um, Many people are familiar with what has been called mirroring or active listening, which is in effect saying back to the speaker what you hear them say briefly in your own language to, to demonstrate, I hear you which is different than I agree with you. It's just saying, I hear that you're interested in learning the seven skills, Anthony. That would be empathic listening. Empathy is the quality of 
saying back to another person what you think they're feeling. And listening is saying that without being empathic. Empathic listening, which, uh, by the way, I got that phrase from uh, Stephen Covey, the man who wrote Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. I'm grateful to him for that phrase, empathic listening. So that's a third skill. Awareness, uh, clear thinking, empathic listening. Sort of the opposite of saying things like, this could turn into a very positive experience for you if you look in at it the right way, which is something that's very common. Life isn't always fair, but you have to roll with the punches. <laughs> True. True. Um, another skill that many people are unaware of, in my biased opinion, can be called digging down. If you start with the idea that we communicate in order to fill needs, and needs are discomforts, they're very common, we all have them. What I've observed is there are layers of needs. There can be called a surface layer, and an intermediate layer, and a core layer. So it's like three levels of needs stacked on top of each other. Um, an example might be, um, you tell me you need the car this afternoon. Yes, I need the car. Okay, that is a surface need. If you use the skill of digging down, you say, okay, why do you need the car? Well, uh, I need to go and run an errand. And you dig down further and you say, can you tell me the errand? Yes, I need to get to the dentist's office by 3 o'clock. Uh, I see. So you're telling me you need the car in order to get to the dentist by 3 o'clock. Yes, and I also need it to get home on time to prepare dinner. I see. So those are the two reasons you need the car today. Yes. Well, I need the car this afternoon, too. We have a problem. Oh, let's do some problem solving, which is the seventh skill. What I'm trying to illustrate is there are layers of needs. Most people focus only on the surface need. I need you to be quiet. I need you to chew with your mouth closed. I need you to stop interrupting me. I need you to look at me. I need you to stop looking at me. I need you to not hang up on me. I need you to text me. I need you to do more on time. Those are surface needs. Underneath them are deeper needs. And in order to do effective communication and problem solving, what I advocate is people can learn the skill of digging down below the surface need to find out what people really need. For example, I need you to tell me the truth about whether you're having an affair or not. That is a surface need. Underneath that is the primal need. I need to know if I can trust you. I need to regain my respect for you. Those are primal needs. Most people don't get that far. So in the example that you offered of needing the car, if we just stayed at the level of information, which is we both need the car, it seems like an impasse. But if we know that you need the car to get to the dentist, then we know that your true need is to get to the dentist so and to get home. So I could say, that's just fine. How about I drop you at the dentist, then I'll run my errand and come back at the end of your appointment and pick you up. Were we to stay at the original level of information, we were at an impasse by digging down, 
we're able to think of new solutions because we're connected with what we each actually need. Exactly. That, um, you anticipate the seventh skill, Anthony. That's a great example. You're right. Because that's the value of digging down. When each of two people understand what the other person really needs, that opens up the possibility of negotiating a solution that will um, satisfy both people. Instead, the alternative that many people do because they're unaware of this skill, the alternative, as you know, is to argue or fight or persuade or threaten or demand. None of those are effective communication. Um, so digging down is an acquired skill that most people are not aware of. It's very simple. Once you get the hang of it, it's very, very powerful. So uh, the skills so far are awareness, clear thinking, empathic listening, and digging down. Those are four essential communication skills few people can name or describe or use. Building on those, another skill is the skill of assertion. Assertion has been described as the ability to say something to another person in a way that they can fully hear you. That's the American Management Association's definition, which I can't can improve on. Many people don't know how to assert. What they do instead is hint or whine or complain or demand or threaten. Assertion is the learned skill of saying, based on awareness, here's what I need from you. Uh, a second part of assertion is, and if you choose not to honor my need, here's a consequence that I'm going to choose. That's the second part of an assertion. Um, right. Now, I've got a couple of thoughts on that. Okay. The first is, I notice that often when people try to assert themselves, they might do it with a negative request. Right. And I don't want you spending so much time at work. Okay, great. I'll book myself a golfing holiday. <laughs> no, that's not actually what I meant. What I meant was I want you to spend more time at home. Exactly. That's the primary need. So the other consideration I had was when you said, uh, and we spoke about this in our last video, um, you said, um, if, you don't, if you don't do this, I will do this. Um, that was the second component of asserting. I was just wondering how we um, avoid that sounding like a threat, which might give the other person a one-down R message, you know. Uh, I don't respect you as much as myself. Well, that's a um, good question. There are several variables that um, factor in here, and it would take probably 15 minutes to do a thorough discussion of this. To me, if you have a genuine, respectful attitude towards the other person, if you have an equal, equal attitude, you know, uh, your needs and mine are, and your dignity and mine are of equal value to me. If you have that attitude, when you set a consequence with another person, if you say clearly, I need you to want to stop chewing your food with your mouth open when we dine together, for example, that would be asserting your need. And if you then said, if you are not able to do that, or if you choose not to do that, 
I'm going to not eat with you anymore. Um, the other person, you can't control how the other person is going to receive that. If they receive that as a threat, so be it. If you mean it simply as information, which is what you, Anthony, often say, and I agree with you. If you simply say, I want to inform you what I'm going to do if you choose to ignore my need. I don't mean it as a threat. I don't want to hurt you. I'm not trying to embarrass you or guilt trip you. But I do want you to know your behavior affects me. And if you choose to uh, ignore the need that I'm requesting here, not demanding, but requesting, I'm going to do something. It's a consequence. And in this case, I, I'm going to choose not to dine with you anymore. So you can't control. If the other person is shame-based, if they're wounded, they're going to be defensive, and they may interpret it, which is reality distortion, as a threat and a put-down. If you don't intend it to be a put-down or a threat, if you intend it to be information, and they don't interpret it as information, you can't control that. You can, of course, respond with empathy, which might help them get back on the page with you. But, of course, we can't always choose how we're received. We can't ever choose how we're received. We can all only enter the conversation like a tennis player and hit back whatever, respond in the means we find appropriate in the moment. Uh -huh. So... And that leads to another question, which is that many people have a problem with the use of the word need in some contexts, which is to sort of say, well, I mean, you don't really need it, you just want it. Yeah. Perhaps you could clarify that point. Okay, you were asking about um, some people being uncomfortable with needs versus or, or confused between needs and wants. To, to me, in a sense, that's kind of a surface concern. Um, where I come from is a need is a discomfort. I'm hungry. I need food. I'm thirsty. I need to drink something. I need a glass of water like you did. Um, I need to urinate. I need to sleep. I need to get this report done. I need to read this book and study for this test. Those are discomforts. They are different from wants. A need is something that will cause you increasing emotional or spiritual or physical discomfort if it's not satisfied. A want is something that would be pleasant. I want to win the lottery. I want to go to Gibraltar. Um, I want to be happily married. Um, whatever. But those are not needs. I mean, they may be needs. Wants and needs may superimpose or they may be separate. But fundamentally... But to me, the difference is a want is something that if you don't satisfy a want, you can survive okay. If you don't satisfy a need, uh, you may survive, but you will live in significant discomfort. Um, there's lots of room for interpretation of those two things, and I think they overlap, needs and wants. Um, does that answer your question? Yes, thank you. Sure. Uh, the sixth skill can be called meta-talk, M-E-T-A, meta-talk. Meta is reflexive. Uh, for instance, meta-dancing is dancing about dancing. Uh, meta-reading is reading about reading. 
So what I mean by meta talk is talking about how you are talking. That is a learnable communication skill. For example, and of course, if you do learn some communication skills and you want to pass them on to family members or to associates, you will be doing a lot of meta talking where you try to teach them. That's true. Um, the, that's part of meta talk. The other part is real time awareness when two people are talking of the process that's going on inside of you and between you and the other person. So meta talk can sound like, um, I notice whenever we start to talk about money, you avert your eyes. That's meta talk. I notice that frequently you finish my sentences for me. That's meta talk. I notice that when I ask you a direct question, you're silent. I notice when I bring up uh, the fact that you're often late, I notice that you get defensive, hostile, and angry, and you change the subject. Those are examples of meta talk. It describes without judgment, underlying without judgment. This is not you're bad because you changed the subject. That's judgment. It's simply neutral reporting. As you earlier said, Anthony, it's giving the other person information about how you observe the process between you. So that to me is a learned skill based on awareness of your communication process. If you're not aware of your process, you can't do metatalk. Also, metatalk requires that you learn a vocabulary that most people don't know. There, there are a group of terms, example, uh, eye contact. Many people are familiar with that, but that is a meta term. Um, voice rhythm, voice accent. For instance, at times, Anthony, I have difficulty understanding you because of your accent. That's, <laughs> that's meta talk. And I don't know if the reverse is true, by the way. Um, but in any event, the skill I'm wanting to highlight here is it is useful, especially in important communication, not just, uh, would you pass the salt, please? You don't mean to talk for that. But if you have a conversation like, um, our son was just caught stealing from the local grocery store. What are we going to do about that? That is when you need meta talk. You need to be able to describe whether your communication process is effective or not. Meta talk is a way of uh, disclosing we have a communication problem. That's the value of meta talk. It's the sixth of seven skills. Um, any comments or questions on that? Sounds good so far. Okay. The seventh and last and biggest skill, as I began to say a minute ago, requires all six other skills. Awareness, clear thinking, digging down, empathic listening, respectful assertion, and sometimes it requires metatalk. The skill is problem solving. Very few people in my experience are have a clear mental idea of this process that we go through all the time with everybody, which is solving problems. Real quickly, problem solving starts with the idea a problem is a need that is not filled. That's what a problem is. 
If you and I have a problem together, one or both of us have needs that aren't filled. Okay, what do we do about that? We describe what, you describe what you need, you dig down and tell me what you need, and I'll dig down and tell you what I need, and when we're each clear on what each of us needs, then we can negotiate and brainstorm as teammates, not one up or one down, not as adversaries, but as mutually respectful people. You can brainstorm. Two heads are better than one. Yes. How can we each get enough of our current needs met in a way that feels good to both of us? That is problem solving. Would you agree that very few people could describe what I just said? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And um, most of us probably have great stories of watching our parents uh, fumble around the issue of problem solving rather less effectively than they, than we wish they might. Exactly. Right. Because nobody taught our parents how to do this. Teachers at school don't teach kids how to do this, to my knowledge. That's a generality. But um, I don't think many people have this clear idea of problems or needs. Your needs are as important as mine, unless we're in an emergency. How can we each understand what I need and what you need? And then how can we cooperate to fill each of our needs enough, well enough, maybe not perfectly, but well enough, in a way that we both feel good about? How can we do that? Most people don't know that. It's, it's stunning to me. It is so obvious. And yet most people are ignorant of this. Um, so I get real worked up about this, <laughs> as you can tell. Uh, because it's easy to learn and it's easy to put in practice once you're aware of it. It would solve many, many parenting and family problems if the adults were clearly aware of these seven skills and helped each other use the skills and teach them to their children. So how can um, family adults and teachers and schools prepare to teach these skills to kids? Well, the first obvious step, Anthony, is to learn the skills themselves. Well, that would be a prerequisite. Right. And most parents don't know what they don't know. Um, I mean, what I can say factually is, uh, among the videos I have on YouTube, over 180 videos, uh, a large percentage of them has to do with communication skills. They routinely never appear in the top viewed with videos. People just don't care about communication. They're not interested. They don't know what they don't know. I mean, I'm generalizing, of course, but the majority of average people are content because they are ignorant of what they could do. They are content to communicate at maybe 30 to 40% of the effectiveness that they really could achieve with children and adults at home and at work. They simply don't know what's possible. So Yes, uh, I feel your frustration on that point. I, I will put a link to lesson two of your website in the description of this video if people want to go straight to the lesson on improving their communication. Thank you. Several of the videos on my channel are specifically geared to help people improve their communication skills because 
I like the videos to be as practical as possible. I like to give people tools that they can actually use. Right. I myself am a communication coach and it isn't as easy as you might hope it is to get clients because you know that what you have to offer could really improve people's life and yet very few people are interested in thinking could I get what I want by improving the way I speak to others? Most people think the problem is with the other people who aren't satisfying their needs. Or too often people think that. So it would be a really good thing if parents and teachers and caretakers chose to learn to improve the way they communicate so they could model those behaviours and pass them on to their children. Yep. There's only a couple more points that I thought ahead of time to cover, unless you want to add anything in. One is the idea of expressing needs and emotions in relationships. Some people feel like they shouldn't express their emotions because they're kind of like, my problem. They might think, well, you know, if I'm angry at them, it's my problem. What do you think of that attitude? Instead of what? Instead of, if I'm angry about them, I should talk to them about how I feel and see if we could create a solution. Well, I guess all I can do is affirm, yes, some people do feel that way. That's the opposite of two things. One thing that I'm a big advocate of, um, on my website, one of the pages there is a bill of personal rights. Um, in thinking a great deal about effective assertion between people and what inhibits children and adults from being respectfully assertive. One thing I've discovered is that many people are unaware of their own rights, R-I-G-H-T-S, as a dignified person. Uh, among those rights, which I claim are universal, uh, regardless of age or gender or race or anything, um, I have the right to my emotions. No one can tell me what I should feel. No one can tell me what I shouldn't feel. I also have the right, I claim the right, to express my emotions when it's appropriate. It's my judgment as to when it's appropriate or not, not yours. It's mine. That's my right. If I express my emotions to you and it's offensive or upsetting to you, that is not my problem. It is yours. That may sound pretty harsh, but to me, many people... Um, miss effective communication because they take on responsibility for their listeners feelings uh, when in fact it's the other person's responsibility to judge their own feelings and to deal with them. I'm not sure if this is relevant to the question you posed but that's what comes up for me. Uh, okay. Emotions are to me emotions every emotion every human emotion is a gift. Uh, some are pleasant some are not every single one, regardless whether they're pleasant or not, points to a need. And if you can use your emotions saying, I'm angry, I'm frustrated, I'm hurt, I'm confused, I feel guilty, I'm ashamed, I'm elated, I'm thrilled, I'm delighted, I'm content, I'm satisfied, I'm serene, whatever. You know, every one of those, or many of them, not all, point to an unfilled need. That's the basis for problem solving. So to me, it's highly useful 
for two people in relationship to be able to freely express their emotions to each other as long as they do it with an equal equal or message. Right now your behavior is frustrating to me because blank blank blank. And that's a lot different than you are an insensitive clod and uh, you have no sense of social responsibility. That's an attack. Um, anyway, I'm, I'm sort of wandering off in space here, but... It, that's okay. Um, Some people perhaps think because their only experience of anger was rage growing up, that therefore all anger is bad. Sure. But I think it's true what you say, that there's no such thing as a bad emotion, only an unpleasant emotion. There's no such thing as a negative emotion, only an unpleasant emotion. I think that's true. I think a mistake that people make is to say um, anger is a negative emotion. No, it's not. It's a pr primitive survival reaction um, to being hurt or threatened. Um, the expression, there, it's, it really is helpful to draw the clear demarcation between feeling an emotion. Inherently, there is nothing wrong with feeling any emotion, nothing, unless it's excessive or crippling. Then there is something wrong with the feeling of it. The second aspect of emotions is expressing your emotion. The way you express your emotions can be positive or negative, um, at least the way I see it. People express anger in ways that can be really destructive to themselves and their partner. That is bad expression. Feeling angry is inherently healthy, in my opinion, or feeling sad, or feeling confused, or resentful, or frustrated. Typically, people say those are negative emotions. No, they're not. They're useful pointers to, I need something. I get real so, excited about this. <laughs> sure. So sometimes people will say, oh, you shouldn't be so bothered about that. You know, let it go. Is it their choice? No. Um, I typically, in a situation like that, I'd say I'd appreciate it if you wouldn't tell me what to feel. Okay, good. Nathaniel Brandon, in his book, The Psychology of Self-Esteem, expresses the idea that emotions are a sort of approximation of how for us or against us we think a situation is. Would you agree with that definition? Generally, yeah. I, I have great respect for Brandon, and um, I think that's a useful description, sure. Do you agree with the idea in nonviolent communication that emotions arise as a synthesis between how we're viewing the situation and the situation itself, so that no one really elicits an emotion in us? but rather it's a combination. So if you're late to meet me, Pete, but I'm sitting under a tree reading my book, I might be quite glad that you were late. Uh -huh. And on the other hand, if I'm desperate to get tickets for the concert, I'll be annoyed at you because your lateness jeopardizes our ability to get, get a good seat. Well, if, I think what you're illustrating is there are a number of different factors that uh, are involved as to how people's behavior affect each other. You know, it's not just one thing. It's attitude, it's expectations, it's local circumstances. Uh, but you're right. I agree with you.
the reason why I bring it up is because it reflects on the way we express ourselves. So if I think that you are the cause of my emotions, I would say you made me feel angry when you were late to the concert. Uh -huh. But but if I was taking responsibility for my needs, then I'd say I felt angry when you were late because I wanted to get to the concert on time. Right. That, to me, the, the second of the illustrations you just gave depends on a person's true self being in charge um, so they are not defensive or shame-based or need to deny um, responsibility for their own feelings. I think that's fairly rare. I think most people typically are unaware and that often leads them to be defensive or to justify you know, behavior that irritates or frustrates another person. Uh, but I think you describe the ideal, um, and it's something everyone can shoot for. That is one communication skill which I suggest people make a habit of, which is to always express their emotions in an I message yes. and explain what they wanted in the situation, rather than say, you just make me so frustrated or whatever comes out of their mouth in the moment. That's something that can be practiced as a discipline and become habit. Yeah, you so, mean, go ahead, I'm sorry. No, please, by all means. Well, you, you mentioned uh, to me an important aspect of the skill of assertion. Um, one form of effective assertion can be called an I message. I know you're familiar with that. Many people are not familiar. Um, an I message is a way of describing someone else's behavior and the impact of the behavior on you. Uh, when you chew gum with your mouth open, it really frustrates me and defocuses me. That is a factual statement that can be recorded on tape. And that's not an attack. It's not blaming. It's not sarcasm. It's information, which you, Anthony, referred to a number of times here. It conveys information to the other person without evaluation or judgment. When you do that, the second part of an I message is, here's how it affects me. It makes me feel frustrated and disrespected. And the third optional part of an I message <clears throat> is an action statement or request or even a demand, which is, I'd like you to be more aware and chew your gum with your mouth closed when you're around me. Period. So I'm glad you raised the idea of an I message. That's an important tool that people who want to learn how to be effective assertors uh, can use, with, particularly with kids. Great. There's only one more question that I was hoping we could discuss in this video, uh, and that's something that I've noticed. Often when we get into a debate about some subject, maybe it's politics, or you could just be debating something with your kids, it seems like everything we've learned about communicating empathetically often goes out the window. How can we get into a debate that surrounds factual reasoning and attempting to impress the facticity of our opinion on the other person or receiving new facts that could change our opinion 
without being disrespectful to the other person? How do we debate with dignity? Um, that's a complex question, I think. Um, my The answer that forms as I listen to you is what we, meaning if we are the speaker, if we, we are person A in a two-person conversation, um, we have control over some of the factors between us, but not all. What we have control over is awareness, knowledge, knowledge of our needs, and our attitude towards our partner. We can choose an attitude of respect or one up or one down. But those factors we can control. We cannot control those factors in our partner. Uh, we can influence our partner by our behavior, but we can't make them want to listen or heed our requests or be respectful to us or give us an equal, equal R message or do empathic listening. We can't make the other person want to learn the seven skills and to use them. We can't, we can't control that. Um, one fallback position to that lack of control uh, in my experience, at least, is using the serenity prayer. Simply asking ourselves if we're frustrated with the behavior of someone else, if we're trying our best to communicate effectively with a child or an adult, and we find that they're not hearing us, they're not heeding us, um, they're not getting what we're trying to say, they're not cooperating, uh, they stubbornly refuse to change their behavior if we would like them to. Under those circumstances, we need to ask ourselves, what can I change and what can I not? And if I cannot change this other person's behavior, I need to adapt to it and accept it. And I need to maintain my own self-respect at any cost. So I need not to stoop to manipulating or controlling or lying or attacking or doing things that impulsively frustrated people do. Um, we need to attend our own dignity and keep ourself, our true self, in charge of ourself. Um, assess the situation as non-objectively, as, I mean as objectively, as non-objectively can. Make allowances for the other person. We think they're wounded or in denial or unaware of some important information. And we need to be compassionate towards them and say the other person simply doesn't know how to respond, doesn't know how to relate, doesn't, hasn't been taught the skills they need. I can't control that. I can control my emotions, and you know, I can control if and when I express my emotions, and I retain the right to have my emotions uh, depending on the behavior of the other person. If they keep interrupting me, for example, I have the right to feel irritated and annoyed and I claim the right to confront them in a respectful way. I notice that probably four times out of five, when I speak, you interrupt me. When you do that, I feel really, really frustrated, and I wish you would let me finish. I'm sorry about that, Pete. I thought I was a good listener. <laughs> you are. You're a very fine listener. You're a very good communicator. Uh, Thank you. Yeah. As are you, I'm sure you've no doubt. Well, that is everything I thought of beforehand to cover. Is there anything that you'd like to express that you haven't yet? 
Thank you. Um, I'd simply like to say to your listeners, first, if you have listened to this entire interview, I salute you. Um, I salute you even more if you're going to try and apply what we some of what we have covered here in this interview on a specific action level. What I would recommend to you listeners is look at lesson two in my nonprofit educational self-improvement website. What you will find there is there is not a one single ad in the entire website. It is non-commercial. I'm not selling anything except knowledge and self-awareness. So whether you are a parent or not, I encourage you to try out the idea that there is a lot you don't know you don't know about communicating effectively, and you can improve your life, your self-satisfaction, and your relationships if you choose consciously to improve your communication. If you go to lesson two in my website, it will show you in great detail how to communicate effectively. I hope you'll give that a try. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is an offer you cannot refuse. So thank you very much for coming on the show again. It's been a great pleasure to talk to you, and I hope we get to speak again in the future. Well, thank you so much, Anthony. You, you do a great public service, I think. I'm delighted to share this topic with you because, to me, it is so fundamentally important, especially for parents. So I'm grateful to you for the opportunity to focus on this with you. Thank you. Likewise. Have a great day. Aye, aye. You too. Okay, I hope you enjoyed that. If you want more from Pete, although he's no longer with us, you can still find his many videos on YouTube. And if you would like more from me, I have an entire playlist on YouTube dedicated to helping you improve your relationship and communication skills, you just type my name, Anthony, that's A-N-T-O-N-Y, Samarov, S-A-M-M-E-R-O-F-F, into YouTube. Until next time, be yourself. Well, don't just be yourself, be yourself and love it.